back in 2016, Edison International was rethinking how to boost their efforts towards fighting climate change. As the parent company behind Southern California Edison, one of the country's biggest utilities, they were making strides in the power sector. But when they came to other industries like automotive and chemical manufacturing, they noticed an opportunity to help companies decarbonize. So Edison added clean energy consulting into the mix with their new venture, Edison Energy. Edison Energy was set up to try to help those companies make better choices, to go faster, to manage that complexity in a way that was consistent with their financial and business goals, but also to help them think about how to set sustainability goals at the same time. So that, that was the, really the reason we did it. And after almost eight years as a senior VP of corporate development and sustainability at Edison International, Drew Murphy wanted in. After identifying clients' energy needs, Edison Energy helps form long-term clean energy plans and sets up power purchase agreements with renewable developers. So that's where we started. That was really the, the first set of issues was managing, managing risk and managing, you know, managing clean energy goals uh, initially. And we've moved on from there to offer a broader range of services. And with dozens of global Fortune 500 companies now working with them, Edison Energy has been instrumental in providing a clear path to decarbonization for different sectors of the economy. This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say utilities are slow to change, they don't innovate fast enough. And while it might not always seem like the most cutting edge industry, there are lots of really smart people working really hard to make the grid cleaner, more reliable, and customer centric. This week, I'm speaking with Drew Murphy, CEO of Edison Energy. This past summer, Drew decided to take the reins over at Edison Energy, managing risk and reaping rewards for all those involved. And he's the right guy for the job. With executive roles at Energy and Edison under his belt and his work on energy project finance at law firm Hutton & Williams, Drew understands how to make big climate goals a reality. The faster that we can get companies to set goals and meet those goals and really implement, take action to implement uh, decarbonization strategies, the sooner we're going to get where we need to be in terms of climate. When Edison Energy starts working with any company, they focus on three factors, cost, carbon, and complexity. So to start, I asked you to tell me a bit more about that process. You know, that's, that's a, a sort of catchy catchphrase, but I think it, it really encompasses what we, uh, what we focus on for most of our, our, our clients. We, we put cost first because at the end of the day, you know, these are businesses that have commercial and financial objectives they have to meet uh, for their customers and their shareholders. Um, so that is always forefront in the forefront of our mind is that we have to help them uh, meet their commercial goals while also trying to meet sustainability and energy, clean energy goals. Uh, so that's the, that's the carbon part of cost, uh, complexity and carbon. And complexity is inherent in this space. And what we think we're particularly good at is bringing you know, this team of experts we've assembled to simplify the complexity, not, not to make it go away, but to make it more understandable and manageable for folks. And, you know, we, we help them understand the risks inherent and in that uh, equation and often help them put strategies in place to manage that risk more effectively so that they reduce that complexity. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the uh, mandatory climate disclosures that California is currently considering. Um, what will the impact be on your clients and the grid overall? Yeah, I think it's going to have a really important impact because 
there's two, two reasons. One is like the SEC rule that is still under consideration and similar to the rules that are going into effect in Europe, the proposed uh, legislation that the governor is saying he's going to sign actually covers uh, reporting on all three scopes. So scope one, two, and three carbon emissions. Particularly important, and I think where the impact will be, is the um, requirement to report on scope three emissions, which is the essentially the supply chain, the downstream emissions um, that companies have. And that, to me, is transformative because we know that a lot of big companies, especially public companies that have had shareholder and other pressure to, to set goals and to report their own emissions in their scope one and, and two uh, categories. When they have to think about scope three, that means going to their to their supply chain, to their vendors, and saying, you now have to put goals in place yourself. First of all, you have to report your inventory, but then you're going to have to set targets that match our targets. I know the, the legislation in California doesn't require the goals of the, the targets, but that's inevitably where this is going to go once you start reporting out on the emissions uh, themselves. And we're seeing this already. We represent... Um, several large automakers, including Honda and others, who are focused very much on getting their suppliers, their tier one and tier two suppliers first, to actually do this and putting plans in place to have programs where they actually essentially help fund and um, encourage, you know, sustainability plans and targets down the supply chain in those in those suppliers. So I think the mandatory reporting frameworks like the one that California is putting in place will drive that more aggressively, will will accelerate that that uh, deployment down the into the further into the smaller companies in the supply chain. The, se- the second thing I will say about California that is different than the SEC rules, which is also, I think, really important, is that California's legislation applies to both public companies as well as privately owned companies. And to date, at least that's been an area where there has been a lot less visibility in terms of the private set. The privately owned companies haven't had to do as much. And frankly, a lot of the assets that some of the big public companies have shied away from or gotten out of are now held by privately uh, traded companies. This will start to shine a light on it. I think it's a really interesting model. I know Edison has had a lot of success procuring offsite renewables, I believe 11,000 megawatts as of uh, today. Maybe for the benefit of our audience, uh, tell us what offsite renewables are. Uh, offsite renewables we do for clients uh, who are looking to try to uh, set targets to have cleaner energy. Um, and we help them negotiate direct purchase agreements with an owner developer of a a renewable project, a wind project or a solar project in the U.S. And they're off-site because they're not on the client site. So this is a project that is being built somewhere else. Uh, a lot of them, you know, it's uh, somewhere else on the grid. And we help them negotiate the off-take agreement so that they're going to buy the power from that project uh, and use that to account towards the power that they use in their facilities. So those are some of the key kinds of things we've worked on over the last eight years for clients. So in that eight years, 11,000 megawatts of offsite renewables. I think you guys now represent 45 of the global Fortune 500. So a lot of experience. I'm curious, what's been the most challenging project you've taken on while at Edison Energy? One that one area where we're really uh, seeing some new challenges is in helping smaller companies actually do offsite renewable procurement. And the reason that's more challenging is that for the big companies, they were able to buy, you know, 100 megawatts or 200 megawatts at a time, which a developer is interested in signing a, a power purchase agreement for. 
when you're smaller, your, your, your load may be smaller. What you're trying to do is maybe look for 10 megawatts or 20 megawatts. And that starts getting harder to sign a PPA directly with a developer for. And so what we're seeing is the beginnings of aggregating smaller buyers uh, together in a way that allows them then to actually be able to talk to a developer and get the right kind of pricing and, and actually sign a PPA like that. So I think that's an area where there's going to be a lot more innovation um, and uh, trying to get the price to work for smaller companies that may not have the same balance sheet or credit ratings is part of that. So there's some real innovation going on there that I think is complex and challenging, but, but interesting. It's kind of not unlike community sold in a residential space, right? Like you, you may not want to put a full set of panels on your roof, but you'd love to partake in renewable energy. So you go and, you know, invest in a community solar farm. Is it kind of that similar is, to that? Yeah, I think, I think it could be something that model could look, start looking like that in some way. That's right. Yeah. And is there an education component here too? Like do the smaller companies, are they thinking about their ability to procure energy from offsite renewables? Or do you have to go in and say, hey, this is possible. Let me show you the options available to you. There's an education component, even with the big companies, uh, when they first start on this. So yes, definitely with some of the smaller ones who haven't, haven't, aren't as far along in the journey and thinking about what clean energy is going to mean for them and all. So one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing with any client is beginning to explain to them how it works, why it can be beneficial, uh, you know, what some of the, the risks are that can be managed, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of education. That's, that's what our team is particularly good at. I think it's one way we stand out and have become one of the leading uh, advisors in this area is that we take the time to really bring that expertise to them and talk to them about what it means. We're not just a platform that, you know, brokers a deal for them, not just a clearinghouse to hook them up with somebody, but we actually take the time to sit down with them. So we've talked about large companies or small companies and maybe some of the differences there. You know, what do you take into consideration when working across different industries? Like how do the clean energy demands of an automaker differ from a chemical manufacturer, for example? So every, yeah, every industry has sort of a different energy usage profile. Um, the chemical manufacturers have really you know, a much higher energy intensity in terms of the operations that they, um, that they run and often, uh, often are initial engagement with them is just helping them with the, what we would call their conventional supply, helping them more effectively uh, and uh, buy natural gas and manage the pricing risks around that because they use a lot of it. Um, and that can be, that's different than somebody who's got mainly office space or retail space. Um, so every industry has a different profile. Um, and as we go into the sustainability uh, parts of their planning and we look at their scope three emissions, which we talked about earlier, is they're getting to have to set targets there. Everybody's supply chain is completely different. So right now we're doing most of our supply chain work for auto companies and pharmaceutical companies like Bristol-Myers Squibb is a big client of ours. Their, their issues, even on their sites where they manufacture their, you know, their products and then their supply chain look very different than what a GM would have in the, on the auto side or what an industrial uh, chemical company would have. And we have clients in all of those that are looking at both their own usage, but also their supply chain scope three emissions. So let's talk specifically about, you know, what all this means for electric utilities and the grid. Explain how large CNI customers and non-utility owned clean energy assets, you know, really affect grid operations at the utility. So really there isn't much direct effect on sort of the utilities grid operations from having corporate PPAs like we're talking about. So just having, it, it, that doesn't tend to affect grid operations directly. Um, you know, the projects get, when, 
renewable projects get built, the uh, utilities have to make sure that they're interconnected properly, that that project itself has to be part of the uh, whatever the system operator is. You know, in California, it's the California ISO, and in uh, in the East Coast, it's PJM. So that's that's pretty much the same, regardless of who the offtaker is. And then, what do you think the role is of these CNI customers in decarbonizing the grid? You know, maybe describe to us a future where the utility is working with clean energy resources they don't own, but they do operate. Yeah, so I, I think that having corporate entities like we've been talking about, big commercial industrial um, folks, buy clean energy directly, what it really is about is accelerating their, accelerating their clean energy usage. And at the same time, by doing that, accelerating clean energy that is actually on the grid and that is sort of part of, part of the whole system. So it really, it really accelerates both of those things at the same time. Um, that's, that's really what, that's really what it's about. Um, and as we move forward and the grid is cleaner and cleaner in terms of the power content, you will, obviously there will be less and less need over time for companies to do this themselves because essentially it will either, the, the grid will have projects connected to it that supply more and more, a larger percentage of the power on the grid to with clean energy. So that's the future that we're all working towards where we don't actually need to do these anymore because it's essentially built into the power supply already. But, you know, we're still, we're still 20, way, 20 years away from that. I hope it's not more because if it's more, we won't meet our, uh, meet our sort of Paris Accord goals, but we're at least 20 years away from that happening. So you've been kind enough to uh, duck out of Climate Week to have this conversation, which I appreciate. What are some of the key things you're hearing at Climate Week um, that, you know, maybe are a bit more forward-looking or things that have got you pretty excited? Any kind of major trends or insights coming out of the event? You know, this, this time, what I've really been hearing is about is focus on taking action and how can we do more? We need to do more and more quickly. So it's about action and impact. And that's, that's really encouraging to me, even though we know where the trend is. We're not probably on the trend we need to be. So the trajectory needs to be even, you know, accelerated. But hearing people talk about actually projects and implementation, investment, and how to do more of that is, I think, the right direction for us to go. In terms of particular uh, topics that have been interesting to hear about, uh, two I would I would mention. One is there's a lot of talk about hydrogen and their hydrogen you know, if again, go back a couple of years, it was just starting, but you're hearing a lot of people talk about it really seriously. I think that has to do a lot with the provisions in the IIJA and, and the IRA bills that the federal government had passed. Um, I also think that has to do with the fact that people are now realizing that electrification alone isn't going to solve it. It's going to be a big piece of it, but there has to be a low carbon or zero carbon fuels uh, for other parts of the economy that can't be electrified. So that's been pretty interesting. And the other thing people are talking about is how are we going to actually remove carbon from the places where you can't do it, um, where you can't electrify or can't use hydrogen or something like that. So, you know, carbon capture, um, sequestration, other, other sources of capture, and how do we not only advance those technologies, but how do we give people credit for the carbon sinks that are out there? That's a, that's, there's a lot of talk around that as well. In addition to all your energy experience, I see that you're also involved in public radio uh, organizations on the board uh, of some. Uh, talk to me about your your role in those and why that's an important um, focus for you. Yeah, I've been a longtime listener to NPR, National Public Radio, and 
when I, um, and I, and I really enjoyed it. And I think it provides a really important uh, public service in terms of getting information out there. So when I moved to California to take the job at Edison, I was fortunate enough to be asked if I was interested in joining the board of Southern California Public Radio, which is, has the largest NPR station in, in the area. And um, I uh, thought it'd be a great opportunity to learn more about the region. I was new to Southern California to make some new connections and, you know, really and be a part of an organization that was doing some interesting stuff. Uh, that was before podcasts really took off. So um, since then, we at, S S at Southern California Public Radio have really leaned into podcasts like a lot of folks. So I will admit, this is my first podcast. I've never done one before, so, uh, but it's fun to be part of that. But I really became convinced that of the importance of the mission of Southern California Public Radio and all of the NPR stations of providing community-based, local, fact-based journalism in a national context. Um, and so that has become something that I, I think is actually linked to the work I do in climate change in the sense of uh, we need to try to look forward and make sure people have, you know, are actually trying to have good information to make better decisions so that we can, things like climate change can be addressed. And um, Southern California Public Radio is affiliated with American Public Media Group, which I'm also on the board of. So I, when I got asked to join that board, I was also quite pleased to take that on. And it's been a really rewarding experience, um, one that I'm, I'm, I'm really learning a lot from. So back to the Back to the point about continuously learning, taking on new new things and, and trying to see the bigger picture. I, I found that I've, you know, I have the opportunity to do that in these uh, board roles as well. Cool. Appreciate that insight. Uh, so final question for you. Uh, we call this show With Great Power, which is a nod to the energy industry, but it's also a famous Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. What superpower do you bring to the energy transition? I'll go back to uh, maybe the legal background that we talked about earlier. And it's not having been a lawyer per se, but it, I think the ability to see connections between different, uh, different specialties or different uh, disciplines and, and, and tie them together and sort of see the bigger picture. That's, that's one thing I've always found, I found I've enjoyed, but I think I, I can bring that to the conversation, which is to realize that a lot of people are, go, go deep and they're experts in one thing you know, I sort of can look across and sort of pull the pieces together and say, hey, we need to, we need to think about this more holistically. And that's, that's something that I, I really try to focus on is looking at who else do I need at the table? What other information do we have? How do we put the pieces together? And not just, not just my piece, but how, what are all the other pieces have to be? Awesome. Well, thank you, Drew, for your time. So I appreciate that honor and uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Drew Murphy is the CEO of Edison Energy. With Great Power is produced by Gridex in partnership with PostScript Media. Delivering on our clean energy future is complex. Gridex exists to simplify the journey. Gridex is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, and Dalvin Abawaji, all from PostScript Media. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Marquand. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If this show is providing value for you, and we really hope it is, please help us spread the word. You can rate or review us at Apple and Spotify, or you can share a link with a friend, colleague, or energy nerd in your life. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brad Langley. 